Hello, and welcome to An Open Conversation, the podcast series which explores obesity through the lens of policy, prevention, treatment, and long-term management. I'm your host, Jacqueline Bowen-Busato, and I'm the policy lead for the European Association for the Study of Obesity, EASO, and Expert Secretariat for Open EU. Today, I'm delighted to be welcoming to the open conversation table, Christine Gallagher and William Bill Dietz. In today's episode, we'll be discussing current barriers to effective obesity policies and novel ways to shape those policies. So let's get into it and let's talk about obesity. So once again, welcome. It's an absolute pleasure to have you both on this podcast. I'll ask you firstly, briefly to introduce yourself, and then we'll start getting into the meat of the matter. So Bill, let's start with you. Tell us about yourself and what brings you to the table. Thanks, Jacqueline. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm Bill Dietz, the chair of the Redstone Global Center for Prevention and Wellness at George Washington University School of Public Health. I'm also the director of the Stop Obesity Alliance. I'm a pediatrician. My background includes 16 years at the CDC as the director of the Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Obesity. Wonderful. And what's your burning passion? Why come to the table to have what may not be so simple a discussion? Well, I think obesity is one of the four pandemics affecting the world's population. The first is undernutrition. The second is obesity. The third is climate change. And the fourth now is COVID-19. And Our belief and my passion is to address all of these areas simultaneously, because I think if we think of these as a syndemic, as pandemics that occur in the same time and place and have an adverse effect on each other, then we can begin to identify double or triple duty solutions that simultaneously affect two or three or all four of these pandemics. Okay, wonderful. We're going to come back to that. But first of all, I'd like to bring in Christy to tell us a little bit about yourself and what brings you here today. Thank you, Jacqueline. Great to be here and I really appreciate this discussion that we're about to have. My name is Christy Gallagher and I'm the research project director for the Stop Obesity Alliance. So I work with Bill closely on our projects that we have been doing at the Stop Obesity Alliance. STOP is an alliance of over 60 different organizations and individuals who come together to work on the prevention and treatment sides of obesity. We focus mostly on adult obesity, but have done some work on pediatric and adolescents as well. I've been working on this topic for over 10 years and also as a person living with obesity who has um, received treatment. So I'm passionate on both the work side and the personal side. Absolutely fantastic. I should have said that I'm also someone that's been living with obesity as well. So I think this is actually going to be quite a robust discussion from essentially what is really on offer? What are the policies? Are they fit for purpose? And what are the novel types of solutions that we can start thinking about here? So let's get into it then with the first, I think, very basic question to both of you. What do you consider to be, in your experience, an effective obesity policy? So let's kick off with Christy and then I'll come to Bill. 
So when I think about an effective obesity policy, I think that defining sort of what the healthcare coverage should be, what should be included, d- defining obesity as a disease and bringing everyone closer to that understanding and what the impact of that is on our healthcare system and what our providers are treating. And then getting to the providers, really helping them to understand that obesity is a disease. It should be treated as a disease. It should be included um, in the treatment plan for all the other comorbidities that go along with obesity. And therefore, providers should be trained. They should be given the tools to treat obesity. And they definitely address their bias and stigma against people living with obesity. I think you've raised a number of points before I come to Bill. And the key one is the point on recognition of obesity as a disease in the US context. And of course, as we are all aware, but I think sometimes it does get hidden, the WHO, so the World Health Organization, classified obesity as a disease in 1948. So on paper, it's been a disease since 1948. And here I'm going to uh, give the definition from the WHO, which is currently part of the International Disease Classification Index, which is obesity is a medical condition marked by an abnormal and or excessive accumulation of body fat that presents a risk to health. Now, in Europe, we've actually just gone one step further by the European Commission categorizing obesity as a chronic disease, publishing that pre-obesity, brackets overweight, and obesity are the chronic relapsing disease, which in turn acts as a gateway to a range of other non-communicable diseases, such as diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, and cancer. So I would say there, Christy, based on what you were saying, in the European context, on paper, we actually now have clarification, which is absolutely in line with science and absolutely in line with patient and people living with obesity expectations. Would you agree or what nuances would you see there already? I definitely agree. I was just, as you were going through the timeline there and and the definition I was remembering that here in the United States, it's really only been in the last 10 years that obesity has been recognized as a disease. And that began with our American Medical Association defining it, I think about nine years or so ago now, nine or eight. And I also clearly remember when that happened, there were a lot of us working in this space that were still not sure whether we should be calling it a disease or not. How would that change our efforts on getting good policy? How would it impact the way others see the treatment and the need for policies for impacting people living with obesity? I think we've come a long way in the last 10 years, which is great as far as people now recognizing it, at least in the United States as a disease, but we have a long way to go. Yeah, indeed. I think you hit the nail on the head there, Christy, because um, certainly one of the major challenges that we face in the European context and also generally in terms of global health is that although the legal basis from WHO has been there since 1948, human nature 
is such that it's about a belief system. Is this or isn't this? And that's actually been the loudest voice. But I now like to turn to Bill because your background in particular has been very much on the primary prevention side and also taking a a more physical environmental approach. So I would ask you, what is a perfect policy? What does that look like to you? And also, you know, what are the challenges? Let me go back to something you just said and apply some nuance to that comment. Before I went to CDC, I was running an obesity clinic for children and adolescents in Boston. And I did that for almost 20 years. So I was on the clinical side, particularly on the pediatric side, and then went to the CDC where our focus really did become prevention beginning with the publication of the state maps, which I think transformed how people perceived obesity, that it moved it from thinking this was a cosmetic issue to really an epidemic or pandemic issue. And coming back to your question about policy uh, and what's an effective obesity policy, I would say any policy that has an effect on obesity is an effective policy. And we have some examples of that in the U.S. that changing the WIC package, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program for Women, Infants, and Children, which is a program of of food supplementation for low-income families. When that pattern was changed in 2010, it was followed by significant decreases in the prevalence of obesity, particularly among minority children, which is an example of a policy which has an effect on obesity, although it was not designed to um, affect obesity. Similarly, in the Obama administration, there was, were a number of policies that directed directly at obesity and others more broadly. Another effective policy, which was just recently reported, was changes in the composition of the National School Lunch Program. And those, again, took effect in 2011-2012. And follow-up showed that there were declines in obesity among kids participating in the National School Lunch Program. And those declines were largely in children in poverty. So again, the National School Lunch Program was designed to change the dietary pattern, not necessarily to address obesity, but as a result of changing the dietary pattern, weight loss occurred in lowest income kids that were enrolled in the National School Lunch Program. So I'd like to pick you up on a couple of points there, because one of the reasons that I think we finally, certainly within the European context, managed to get policymakers to start following the science was because we went back to basics and we went back to what is obesity as a disease. So we were actually taking the word of weight out so that uh, policymakers could start to understand that the root cause of obesity is not actually weight. Weight is a symptom. Now we can absolutely understand that from a trends perspective that we're still with BMI, but that would be a whole other podcast. But basically, what I always say to people is that the main challenge with actually adopting a chronic disease narrative on obesity means that uh, we're no longer able to say there is or there isn't, that someone has obesity or they don't if they drop below a particular BMI. Because as someone said very nicely, you can shrink those fat cells, but they will still be there. The biology will still be there for life. 
And if, as Christy was saying, that there's no comprehensive and consistent treatment and long-term care, or that, as you said, Bill, policies that positively impact the progression of obesity are not set in place, then the trajectory will continue to go up, which is, of course, where we are, even only looking conservatively uh, at BMI. So I think my question to both of you then becomes, so what do we do? Because it would seem that it's a hit and miss environment that policies which happen to work in terms of, as you were saying, Bill, really nicely, the school meals program to look at instead of dietary, their nutritional intake patterns. And here I'm coming back to points thinking more about syndemic argumentation. But what would you say in terms of taking a novel approach? Should we keep on asking for obesity policies or should we be asking about policies that impact obesity? I think the latter is more appropriate, that policies with effects on obesity may actually be easier to uh, implement because they're not focused on obesity. Uh, the predominant bias here and in, in, in Europe and elsewhere is that obesity is caused by people themselves, not any kind of internal susceptibility or environmental determinants. I think policies that have its effects on obesity can be stealth interventions. For example, a changing neighborhood design makes those neighborhoods more appealing and potentially more walkable or with a better access to parks and other recreation facilities. That's a, a policy that is widely embraced as a way of increasing physical activity, and yet it could be considered a stealth intervention for obesity. Absolutely. More walkable spaces and more accessible spaces as well is key, but not only for prevention of obesity, but actually part of the interventions in terms of long-term management and care. Christy, you had also worked in a regional representation office in Washington in your previous lives. What would be your take on this? Were you involved with ninja tactics to have these stealth kinds of policies that could impact favorably for obesity? Well, back in my former life, I did not work on obesity in particular, but I worked on healthcare policies, including the United States program for low-income healthcare, which we call Medicaid. Medicaid is run by each of the states, and so each Medicaid program in a state covers different things. So one of the things that we have done at the Stop Obesity Alliance is to look at what some of those coverages are in the states, as well as a plan called the State Employee Health Plan, which again is run by each state and it covers the health care of um, the employees that work for the state. And so we looked at what is the coverage look like? Is someone who is in one of these health plans able to get prevention and treatment screening if they do present with overweight and or obesity, are they able to get some behavioral treatments to help with addressing their obesity? Are they able to be prescribed pharmacotherapy? And if so, what are the drugs that are available to them? And finally, if they are a candidate for surgery, are they able to get the surgery? And if they are able to get it, do they have to jump through a thousand hoops backwards in order to get it? Or is it an easy process to get? And then finally, one of the things you keep mentioning, Jacqueline, which I think is really important, is this long-term 
treatment. It's not a sort of one and done. You've been given your visits for um, prevention or visits for um, behavioral health treatment or even your medication. And then it's over with because obesity is a lifelong disease and it's chronic and it needs to be treated that way. So what we found is that most states do cover the prevention and screening. Most of them do cover the bariatric surgery. It was much fewer in the number of states that cover um, nutritional counseling. And then the least amount of all was the pharmacotherapy. But as we know, there are now an array of different options and they should all be covered. So that's what we've been working on is looking at are people getting the treatment that they deserve. And if not, what are the barriers to that? And that sort of takes us back to what happens in the actual doctor's office. So we've done a lot of work on should providers be trained? How should they be trained? What competencies should they know before they go out and practice? And then when they're in the office, how can we make them feel more comfortable bringing up the topic of weight and obesity with their patients? How do they start that conversation? How do they provide the options for treatment? And then refer out to the places that can provide a more dedicated treatment. Which is absolutely fantastic in practice. It's almost like the uh, tail wagging the dog to say these are the, if you like, the best practices, but how do they become embedded in a more holistic and systems-based approach in terms of policy which, of course, in the end will lead to uh, more comprehensive or consistent reimbursement as well, which I know is a whole other podcast, but go ahead, Christine. <laughs> so one of the things that we then took out of our research looking at what is covered, we were very frustrated because the healthcare system in the United States, it just varies differently from plans to, to states to regions of the, the United States. But one of the things we notice is because it's so variable, go, trying to figure out what was covered, every single different word was used. So we had to use search words like weight, fat, weight loss, obesity, anti-obesity. So just a range of terms. And what came out of that was that we thought that a standard of care for obesity treatment need to be developed for all providers, as well as those providers that actually treat in the office and can prescribe. And then we put together our own comprehensive obesity benefit. And this is the benefit that we believe healthcare plans should offer. And that's for large plans, small plans, healthcare plans that are offered by large businesses. They should offer a comprehensive obesity benefit so that patients can see their doctor and be offered this array of options. And it's a continuum of care. You might start with nutritional counseling, and then be referred for pharmacotherapy or for surgery and all the different things that should be offered. Have we found anyone who's doing that? Not yet. So what we've been doing is working with various different action groups to try and provide this benefit as a model and then asking them, would you be willing to you know, offer this to your beneficiaries? Can we help you with that? And giving the inspiration to do. So that's really been the gist of my work on this as far as trying to get those benefits available. And it's been a slow road, but I mean, we've had success. About 10 years ago, we pulled together different obesity experts as well as people from the FDA, which is our Food and Drug Administration who approves medications. And the companies that we're working on 
putting together new obesity medications and we got that log jam broken up because we were able to help the FDA see that these medications are not weight loss medications. They're not the quick weight loss medications that people take so that they can fit into their prom dress. They're more long-term anti-obesity medications. And the FDA saw that, they began to improve the medications. And so that was has been one of our biggest success stories. And we're going to continue to keep plugging away on the coverage side. So, Bill, we've heard a lot about, if you like, personalized pathway treatments for people with obesity. The ideal scenario, although we know where we are globally, but the ideal scenario is that primary prevention is better than cure. Now, in 2019, pre-COVID, you and colleagues wrote a piece in The Lancet, which actually proffered at that stage quite a revolutionary narrative on a syndemic in which obesity was there, climate change was there, and you've added COVID now as a fourth. But in light of COVID, where do we go from here? How relevant is the syndemic argumentation? How relevant can it still be in light of obesity, chronic disease, not just about weight, impact of physical environment on the biology? Bill. First, let me comment on the the relative emphasis given to prevention and treatment. In in the U.S., 42% of the adult population has obesity. 19% of children and adolescents have obesity. Those are targeted for treatment. On the other hand, we know that treatment, at least the behavioral changes uh, around treatment, are not terribly successful. And we're fortunate to have a whole new generation of drugs, as well as bariatric surgery, as treatment options that are increasingly effective. But ironically, the focus on the adult side has been treatment. The focus on the pediatric side has been prevention. And so on the pediatric side, I think we need improved therapies so that, for example, none of the new drugs have really been approved for uh, treatment of children and adolescents. And, And some of the newer drugs have not yet been approved or tested for children and adolescents. On the other hand, we don't have a lot of good prevention strategies on the adult side. So coming back to what we called the global syndemic of obesity, undernutrition, and climate change, and followed by a new syndemic of COVID-19, obesity, and uh, food insecurity, these are widespread pandemics. They interact in time and place and have adverse effects on each other. So a few examples of the global syndemic of obesity, undernutrition, and climate change. We know that increased levels of CO2 in the atmosphere have an impact on the crop yields and the micronutrient content of crops, particularly in the global south in poor populations. Ironically, those populations who are most affected by climate change contribute the least to climate change. So when we think about how that excess CO2 is generated, one of the areas is transportation that reliance on cars not only contributes to obesity, it also has a big effect on the generation of CO2. So the emphasis on fossil fuels and their use is a contributor to climate change, which has an effect on undernutrition and food insecurity in the developing world, and displaces physical activity. And we know that people who switch from cars to 
physical transport, meaning walking or biking, or public transport, lower their rates uh, of obesity. On the nutrition side, we know that meat production contributes substantially to climate change. In the U.S., 10% of greenhouse gas generation comes from the agricultural sector. The majority of that comes from cattle produced for meat and for dairy, and the methane release of, of cattle. And methane is an even more powerful greenhouse gas than CO2. Beef consumption also contributes to chronic diseases like colon cancer, cardiovascular disease, and obesity. We know that obesity alone increases the likelihood of climate change uh, in terms of increasing the, the cost of transport and also the increased production and consumption of foods to meet the increased weight. I should say that's a, a small contribution to climate change, about 2%, as opposed to the 10% of agriculture and about 30% of greenhouse gases in, in the U.S. are produced by the transport system. So how do we get people out of cars and onto public transportation? And we mentioned earlier the importance of community design as a way of increasing physical activity. How do we reduce the demand for beef so that beef production decreases, methane production decreases, CO2 decreases, people's health improves. And that takes us into a whole new realm of policy. So that, for example, both the fossil fuel industry and um, the agriculture system receive very substantial subsidies from the government, which sustains those systems. And there's a feedback loop because those same systems are very powerful lobbies. So that, for example, in the 2015 Dietary Guidelines for Americans, there was a recommendation that sustainability be considered a criterion for dietary patterns. And the meat industry responded immediately and influenced the secretaries of the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Health and Human Services, which were responsible for the dietary guidelines, to declare that sustainability was not a criterion by which diet could be considered. And the 2020 Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee was forbidden to even explore sustainability as an option. So in order to change what seem to be individual behaviors, we're, we're going to have to really focus on these big underlying drivers of these systems, which are in turn driven by politics. So then the question becomes, how do we generate the political will necessary to address the syndemic of obesity, undernutrition, and climate change. And I think that involves mobilization at the local level in terms of our own dietary behaviors, our own transport patterns, working on our institutions to make those changes, and then beginning to work on our local governments. Because I think the bottom up is growing, but has not yet achieved the power and political will to make those changes. The more recent pandemic of obesity and of COVID-19 obesity and food insecurity ties back to this broader system. But I think it's now widely recognized that obesity is a risk factor for severe COVID-19 infections. And COVID-19 very much affected the food production chain, both in terms of the meat processing plants, but also their transport and consumption. Those in turn and the increases in prices and the lack of availability increased food insecurity. And food insecurity, we know, contributes to obesity, at least in the adult population. It's not as clear that food insecurity and obesity have a causal linkage in the pediatric population. But this is another example of a syndemic. And part of the changes tie back, if you will, to the whole original syndemic of obesity, undernutrition, and climate change, because meat 
production and consumption is a factor in both of those. So that association prompts us to ask, are there other systems or can we do things differently? And perhaps regional food systems with local production are more agile and could switch from one product to another when the supply chains go down. And that's an area that I think is worth pursuing. But these syndemics interacting offer the possibility of multiple solutions. I think the other thing to say about the impact of obesity on COVID-19 infections is that although initially there was a concern about how do we reduce obesity, that seems to have gone by the wayside as we've gone through first the original spread of the pandemic, and now we're dealing with the Delta variant. And I think that the, the promise is that recognizing the disparate impact of COVID-19 on people with obesity and people of color may allow us to focus more on things like the food supply chain as a way of addressing both obesity and food insecurity, as well as reducing the likelihood and severity of COVID-19 infections. Mm-hmm. There is so much to unpack there. And unfortunately, we are literally running out of time. I think we need a part two podcast just to unpack that element. But in final words, because I do have some more questions. Obviously, we're now into a, a new era, both in the US and globally, of the Biden administration. What are your hopes and potentially concerns for the Biden administration in terms of addressing obesity from a systemic perspective, but as a chronic disease? Christy. So it's difficult for me to explain how the United States healthcare plan works because it is different and varies differently across the states. And I know it's not at all like the healthcare system in Europe. But one of our programs that we have is called Medicare, and it provides healthcare coverage for uh, seniors ab- above the age of 65. And what we have been doing, both with asking Congress to pass legislation, as well as going to the Biden administration and asking them to fix the statute around what is available for people with obesity in the Medicare plan. So right now, our federal Medicare program does not cover obesity medications. It also has some strict restrictions around who can provide the nutritional and behavior counseling for people with obesity. So at the federal level, we have been asking for those things to change. And you might ask, why is it important to have it changed only for people over 65? Um, And the reality is that when Medicare changes or regulations for Medicaid, which is our state plan for children and pregnant women and people um, in poverty, when those are changed at the governmental level, they have an impact on the rest of the private health insurance. And so that's why we've been really advocating so strongly for the coverage of pharmacotherapy in Medicare. The legislation is called the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act. And then I think really the next step is once that is done, is helping patients understand that they do have coverage and hopefully then the utilization will go up and there will be the available of a continuum of care for all people living with obesity and overweight in the United States. Excellent. So basically, if President Biden and administration 
are listening, which I'm sure they will be down the road because we'll be in various channels, lead by example. There is no need to reinvent the wheel. The instruments are there. It's actually about implementing them and then raising the health literacy and awareness of those health consumers to actually take up the available treatments. Last word, Bill. What are your hopes? I think it's important to say that we're not going to be able to treat our way out of this pandemic. The, the prevalence of obesity is too high and the uh, availability of resources are too sparse to enable a comprehensive treatment that would reduce existing obesity. The promise of the Biden administration is their focus on climate change. And I, I think that they're certainly invested in changing transport systems and getting people out of cars and onto public transport or active transport and public transportation. This administration's focus on the food system, I think, is less clear. So Secretary Vilsack in the U.S. Department of Agriculture was also the secretary who said that sustainability was not a criterion for the dietary guidelines. He has been silent on the role of meat uh, production and consumption as a factor related to climate change. But I think more broadly that there is growing evidence that more plant-based diets, such as those suggested by the EAT Commission, are likely to have not just an impact on planetary health, but human health. And I think we need to see policies out of this administration on the agricultural side that begin to address the need to change our production chains and to focus more on sustainable food production and move people towards more plant-based diets, not necessarily vegan diets, but vegetarian diets or Mediterranean diets that have a positive impact on health and climate change. There is so much to unpack in all of this, not least the clear message from both of you that this is not a one-size-fits-all solution. Obesity is a chronic relapsing disease. That means that it's not just a one-shot wonder. And it also means that actually it's not about treatment towards cure. It's about getting the disease under control in the first instance, and then long-term management. And that long-term management will necessarily involve looking at sustainable food systems. It will necessarily involve looking at the payer system, not just in the US, but elsewhere. And it will absolutely involve not only engaging with the usual suspects, in terms of those who are focused on obesity policies, but actually it will be more about looking at how to ensure better health outcomes and engaging in all of the actors who can make a difference towards obesity as a chronic relapsing disease in the US and globally. So with that, I'd like to thank you both for a very stimulating part one discussion. And to say to our audience, if you'd like to continue the conversation on Twitter, please do. You can use the hashtag open conversation. And uh, as I'm sure you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
And you can always find out more at www.obesityopen.org. Don't forget also to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at, at Open Obesity and on LinkedIn by searching Obesity Policy Engagement Network so that you can hear about our new episodes. I've been your host, Jacqueline Bowen Busato, and thank you for joining the Open Conversation. Mm-hmm.